Amen. As you're being seated, take your Bible to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. We've had a large chunk of text again this morning, so I'm going to make my way through it relatively quickly. Um, We'll read through the end of chapter 10, actually. So Genesis 9, 18 through 10, 32. There is a robust genealogy here, so bear with me while I labor through maybe some of these names. You can laugh if you want when I inevitably make a mistake, but it'll be fine. Here we go. Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan! A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and to- to- Man, this, this one got me in the first service too. Togarma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each in his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Sheba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabdika. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, Let Nimrod, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Sinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehobothir, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn in Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemanites, or Zemarnites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of the children 
of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in the days of the earth, or for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazar Marvath, Jera, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimelel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha to the direction of Sephar, to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the, after the flood. Small things can have a big impact and often do have a big impact. Um, if you are married, you understand that the potential for a word that you speak uh, coming up 10 years later, you thought it was no big deal, but all of a sudden it comes back and you find yourself talking about it a decade down the road. Or have you ever cut a corner on a home improvement project and found yourself in a position of having to redo that home improvement project just a couple short years later? Or have you found yourself cleaning up a mess at work based on a small miscalculation on a spreadsheet or a misread order or an overlooked phone call? You know the types of impact that even what seems like in the moment something small can have on, on your life and on your day, on your week, on your year. This text, especially in chapter 9, verses 18 through the end of chapter 9, has to do with a seemingly small and subtle sin that has a big impact and lasting consequences. Before we dive in, though, where have we been the last few weeks? We, you'll recall we've been following the story of, of Noah. We learned that God was faithful to Noah to deliver Noah and his family through the flood. Noah had great faith. Noah heard the word of the Lord, and he believed that God would be faithful to his promises. And then as a result, God is faithful to his promises. And as a result of God's faithfulness to his promises, they are now on dry ground. They're, they landed, and God establishes a covenant with Noah. The covenant that Blaise talked about last week was that God would never again destroy the earth with a flood. And so God gives a sign. He gives a rainbow. This rainbow indicates that the type of violence that God exacted against sin on the earth, he'll never exact that same violence against mankind again in the form of a flood. And so Noah, in our verse, or in our, in our text, gets a job. Verse 20, he became a man of the soil, and he plants a vineyard. So Noah gets a job, and that's where we find ourselves here. But before we move ahead, I want to recall again a text that came before in Genesis chapter 3, one that informs this text quite a bit. 
If you remember Genesis chapter 3, the serpent deceives Eve in that chapter. And you'll remember the subtlety of that event. The serpent twists God's word when he speaks to Eve. The words that God gave directly to Adam earlier in Genesis chapter 2. You remember the subtlety of Eve misquoting God in response, in response to the serpent. You remember the subtlety, the seemingly inconsequential lack of action that Adam takes. He fails to intervene on behalf of his wife. And these are small, subtle things. They're not like the big explosive sins that we see crop up in chapter 4 in murder and vengeance. And then in chapter 6 where we see the glorification of violence happening all over the face of the, face of the earth. Those sins are far less subtle. But the subtlety returns here. In this event with Noah and his son Ham... It mirrors Genesis chapter 3. Noah is effectively, what we're being told here in this text, is that Noah is effectively a new Adam. Things are starting over. In creation, God spoke everything into existence, and now he's destroyed everything and bringing it back. And Noah is the man whose line will populate the whole earth, just like Adam was commanded to do. Like Adam was the first, Noah is again the first man on the face of the earth. And so when we get to the second half of Genesis chapter 9, we see actually the events of the fall again making themselves known. They're played out again, just like in Genesis chapter 3. Different characters, but a similar story of subtle sin that works its way in. So as a result, this text, especially the end of chapter 9, gives us some really important things that we need to be aware of concerning sin. Concerning sin. So I've got three things here that this text shows us that we need to be aware of concerning sin. And they kind of build on one another. So let's begin by thinking about the fact that sin always involves others. Sin always involves others. In our society, which is largely secular, in our society, oftentimes people judge the morality of a situation by asking the question, will this hurt anyone else? Or is it just contained within me? The reality is sin always involves others, and asking that question is, is, is a bit ridiculous. Well, if it's not going to hurt anyone else, then feel free to do it, the world says. That's not the way the Bible talks about sin at all. We see here that Noah plants a vineyard. He plants a vineyard. So this is a while after, it takes a while to grow a vineyard, so this is a while after he's exited the ark. Some time has passed, and once Noah plants this vineyard and it grows up and starts producing grapes, he makes wine. And then Noah drinks the wine and gets drunk. Now the Bible clear is clear on drunkenness. Drunkenness is a, a sin. The Bible does not condemn alcohol consumption. In fact, in some instances it even commends it. 
like Paul to Timothy, but it also warns against the excessive drinking of alcohol, which is Noah's sin here. He gets drunk and passes out in his tent. He loses control out of himself. The text is clear. Now, Noah is in his tent, and so we think, no big deal, right? Again, applying the morality of the world, we say, like, he's not really hurting anyone else, so he's free to do whatever he wants, right? But that's not the case, because in verse 22, we see that Ham walks in on Noah. And immediately, someone else is involved. Immediately, someone else is involved. Noah gets drunk and naked and puts his son in a position to sin himself. We'll talk about that in a minute. But think through this with me. We talk about secret sins that exist in our heart. Like we inhabit sinful flesh, and so sin is still a reality for us. Even those who are in Christ, those who have been made new in Christ, there's still pockets and corners in our heart that are dark and where sin resides. This is clear in the New Testament. We're being sanctified. We're being made holy. But right now, sinful flesh is what we still inhabit. And so sin is still a problem for us. The little secret sins that we think are somewhat meaningless, and sometimes we don't, we don't even consider all that, all that bad. Say the bitterness against a, a co-worker that you harbor or the website that you visit when your spouse is out getting groceries. Or just looking over the fence at your neighbor's car and saying, oh, then that car should be mine. You say, those things don't really involve others. Again, that's the standard that the world sets. Those things don't involve others. But the reality is that they do. You let sins like that fester in your heart and they drive you to fail to love God and to love your neighbor. A coworker gets a promotion and uh, you become bitter or frustrated well, because you got overlooked and you throw a pity party and you invite your spouse and your children to attend. Or again, you quickly visit that website while your spouse is out getting groceries and the desire for women that aren't your wife become evident. You allow yourself to linger there and you look at your wife subconsciously or maybe consciously and compare her to those images that you viewed. Or you look over the fence at your neighbor's car, and rather than showing them the love of Christ and being a good neighbor, you begin to have an internal monologue about how much debt they must be in, or how impractical they are buying that convertible, or how you're always frustrated about how much their dog barks. You're jaded towards them. Friends, the source sin may be secret, but the outworking of it will become evident. We need to stop thinking, friends, we need to stop thinking about sin as just the little bad thing that you do. A slip-up. Something that is ultimately inconsequential. Sin is a systemic problem, rather, that begins in your heart. And if you dismiss your sin as not hurting others, it's time to rethink it. Because it always finds its way to the surface, and then it involves others. But not only does sin involve others, the second point here is that sin leads others into sin or has the potential to lead others into sin. Noah is not the victim in this story. Noah is not the victim in this story. Noah's drunkenness was sin. His nakedness indicates bringing shame upon himself and on his family. 
But it's Ham's sin that is the highlight of the text. Ham walks in on his dad, sees him lying there, and what does he do? He goes out and has a gossip session with his brothers, Shem and Japheth. Verse 22 says, He saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. As a result, Shem and Japheth know about the situation and they honor their father and make their way to, into the tent to cover him up. Noah was, in fact, culpable in what Ham does here. Noah's sin leads into sin. He leads Ham into sin. Not only does it involve Ham, it puts Ham in a position to sin himself. Parents, your, your children, you maybe have small children or you may have adult children. Your children are responsible, themselves are responsible before a holy God to honor their parents. Your children honor you as their parents by obeying you if you have young children. Children dishonoring their parents is neither cute nor entertaining. It's sin. And so the admonition from a text like this is, parents, don't set your kids up to sin. Don't put them in a position. Don't lead them into it. A word of caution. Something like, something simple and seemingly inconsequential like putting candy in front of your child and videotaping it, can be confusing for your child. It can be confusing. Next time they disobey, they're going to be disciplined, but they think to themselves, last time this was entertainment. Also, word of caution, young parents, your social media activity and what you say about your children as, as small children will be preserved in amber. It'll be around when your kids have their own accounts, and maybe already is. When you're communicating about your kids on social media now, when they're 18 years old, 16 years old, they're inevitably going back through your Facebook feed from the great pandemic of 2020, and they're going to find some things. What are they going to find? Don't lead them into sin by what you do right now. Don't lead them into sin. Don't set them up to do anything other than to honor their father and mother. And the way that you do that, parents, is by pursuing personal holiness in your life. Take your cues from God's word. And maybe you think, well, this is not, not really a big deal. I would like to suggest that our understanding of sin may need to be more biblically informed. If as a parent of young children or even adult children, you have provided an opportunity for your child to walk into sin because of sin in your own life right now, understand that your sin, you need to take a close look at Scripture and understand that your sin is real and your understanding of it needs to be biblically informed. Listen to the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 9. He says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. The unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into hell. Jesus is very clear here. He's very clear. That which causes you to sin and prevents personal holiness in your life needs to be discarded at all costs. Because it is better to enter life with one foot or one hand or one eye than it is to go to hell. Sin always involves others and sin leads others into sin. Finally, the last thing that we learn here about sin is that it is subtle. And we've already mentioned this, but it's subtle. Ham's sin, again, wasn't murder like Cain's in chapter 4. It wasn't revenge like Lamech's in chapter 4. It wasn't the glorification of violence that polluted the entire earth like in chapter 6. It's gossip. It's gossip. And like the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 who saw Adam and Eve's nakedness and deceived Eve, which led to their eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, ultimately exposing their nakedness, so Ham leaves his father bare and exposed. Shem and Japheth, his brothers, cover their father as an act of kindness. Like God who covers Adam and Eve with the skins of Adam or the skins of animals post fall. But Ham's sin was, wasn't walking in on his dad, although there was disgrace and shame involved in that act. Ham's sin was dishonoring his father by not helping to cover his shame, but by going to, to Shem and Japheth and highlighting it. Ham's sin was dishonoring his father by not helping to cover his shame, but by going to Shem and Japheth and highlighting it. I think if we're honest with ourselves and we just ask ourselves the question, when this week or yesterday or this month sometime, have I seen a brother or sister in Christ actively living in sin and rather than address that sin lovingly with them, I've gone to someone other than them and highlighted that sin. I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's pretty frequently. Ham dishonored his father. Shem and Japheth showed Noah the honor that he was owed as their father. Sin is subtle. And our society takes the fifth commandment to honor one's parents and sort of discards it. In fact, our society even has gone as far as to say that it's the the trauma that our parents have inflicted upon us that is the thing that we need to shed. Don't get me wrong, parents are sinful people who make mistakes. If you have kids, you know you've made mistakes with your kids. Things that they may need to work through in their adult life. There are a lot of bad parents out there. In situations, forms of abuse, these are real. They're commonplace. And as adults, we may, may find ourselves grappling with those situations. However, wrestling through our childhoods and wrestling through our relationships to our parents does not make us less responsible for our own sin. 
But where parents may have sinned against us as children, we must not act like Ham, who highlights the sin. Rather, we must act like Shem and Japheth, who were quick to cover their father's sinful state with grace and with forgiveness. So what about the rest of the text? What about chapter 10? I, I don't have time to, I would love to, I mean, genealogies are amazing, and I know you all love them, and so we could probably take five weeks on this, but we're not going to. Um, I just want to highlight the top shelf understanding of what we see in, in chapter 10. As a result of Ham's actions, right at the end of chapter 9, as a result of Ham's actions, his line becomes cursed through his son, Canaan. Japheth and Shem are blessed then in verses 26 and 27. And then in chapter 10, we see this genealogy unfold. A lot of familiar names, a lot of familiar places are encountered here in chapter 10. And again, I'd love to chase all of those, but for the sake of time, I will give you what I believe to be the top shelf understanding of why this genealogy in chapter 10 is included. Through the cursing of Canaan, we see the persistence of evil on the earth. Through the cursing of Canaan, we see the persistence of evil on the earth. And through the blessing of Shem and Japheth, we see the hope for redemption. So ultimately, we see here that there is one. Again, if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God says to the serpent that there is one coming who will crush the serpent's head the seed of the woman. We see that the one will come who will fulfill the need of image bearers to be delivered from the subtleties of sin and its swelling effects. There is one. That's what chapter 10 is communicating to us at its highest level. There is a line through which Jesus Christ will come and he will deliver his people from the subtleties of sin and its swelling effects. Again, I'd love to spend more time here, but we're going to move to a conclusion. Um, What should we take away from this text, particularly chapter 9? What should we take away from this text? I I think it's simple. I think the admonition is simple. Three simple things. First, beware of the subtleties of sin. Friends, please don't think that your sin is just doing the wrong thing at the wrong time and then moving on. That's not what sin is. Sin is in you. It is in your heart because you inhabit a body body of flesh. It is not just little frustration here, but it grows. It's maybe it grows into bitterness and anger or like ham. It makes its way out of us in the form of gossip, a little internet search or a quick shot at someone on social media. Just a little wish that that new boat that we see parked in our neighbor's driveway would belong to us. It grows. It begins to envelop others. It leads others to sin. It causes them to stumble as that sin inside you grows. It causes you to sin. causes you to act in sinful ways. John Owen, the 17th century Puritan, wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. Mortification means putting to death. The mortification of sin, in it he writes, If sin be subtle, watchful, strong, and always at work in the business of killing our souls, we will be slothful, negligent, foolish, and proceeding to the ruin thereof. Can we expect a comfortable event? 
the because I'm sure 17th century Puritan literature isn't what you've immersed yourself in this week, sifting through that language, Owen is saying, don't let your guard down. Don't walk openly into sin. You think it's no big deal. You're delusional. It's going to kill you. It's going to kill your soul. And so, practically, pray this week. Pray this week that God would show you, He would kindly show you, even the most subtle sin in your life so you could repent, so that you can run to God, that you can put your trust in Him and fall on Jesus Christ as the one who can forgive you from that sin. The second thing that I want you to, to take away from this text is remember your, your clothes. I don't know. It's kind of a corny thing to say, but remember your clothes. Shem and Japheth honored their father by covering his sin and shame. By covering his sin and shame. But that covering that they provided for their father only lasted for a short amount of time. Maybe a couple of hours or less. No one needed lasting covering. You and I need lasting covering. The shame, the sin that is in us, it needs lasting covering. You can't do that. I can't do that. No one can do that apart from Jesus Christ. Your sin and shame can be covered eternally in Jesus Christ. King David in Psalm 32 writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. It is only in Christ, through His blood, that our sin and shame will be covered completely. Final takeaway this morning. Show love to those who are in sin and practice Forgiveness. Show love to those who are living in sin and practice forgiveness. When you find yourself in a position where a brother or sister in Christ is living or actively sinning, don't be led into sin along with them. If Ham is highlighting the sin, be like Japheth and like Shem who go in and lovingly cover their father instead of engaging in the gossip along with them lovingly point out the sin and love them through the repentance process remember loving people doesn't mean ignoring their sin in fact it means the exact opposite which sometimes offends our sensibilities of like let's not meddle in other people's lives but the reality is that for us as brothers and sisters in Christ if we see each other actively sinning we must speak truth into their lives. Again, Shem and Japheth didn't ignore Noah's sins. Rather, they provided a covering. When others are living in sin, we must provide a covering. Jesus Christ is that covering. Friends, this is a, a strong argument for biblical community. You are in an echo chamber in your own brain. You will allow that subtle sin to just rattle around in your heart and your mind. You need the help and the wisdom of others led by the Holy Spirit to help you see the sin that is slowly killing your soul. You need a message of run to Jesus for forgiveness. 1 Peter 4.8 says it like this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Covering here, what Peter says, covering aligns with Forgiveness. Our forgiveness doesn't make people right before God, but it does point them to the forgiveness offered to us in Jesus Christ. 
that does make them right with God. Friends, the love of God led to the sacrifice of Christ for sinners. A love that covers a multitude of sins. Friends, this morning, consider these three things. Beware in your life of the subtleties of sin. Remember the covering that's provided for you in Jesus Christ. And show love to others and offer them that covering as you lead them out of sin. Let's pray.